Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Theo 102 this Monday morning. We are right in the middle of what we are calling our church history boot camp. We did the yes. early church last week, the years zero to 500. And this week, we're going to engage in that wonderful thousand year time period. Isn't it great to do a lecture over 1,000 years of history and developments? I'm yeah. sure it can all be summarized in 30 minutes with no problem. Without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt. That was a joke the medieval period or the middle ages, huge, huge things happened. Like when I hear that, I think to myself, not very exciting, but there were massive educational changes that happened, massive technological changes that happened, the birth of the university, hello. Yeah, I think a lot of times people stereotypically frame the medieval era as like Robin Hood or Robin some Hood. sort of, yes, you know, yes. yeah. Yeah, and it often gets mischaracterized as a time of stagnancy mm -hmm. or uh, backwards motion when actually a lot of really interesting historical books have been written about how the, it was a time of a lot of invention, a lot mm. of really amazing technological developments that helped preserve the church over time. Uh, speaking of history and books, I had read this book when I was in college for a class. It was by this a sociologist at Baylor called um, The Rise of Christianity. And he had posited, fascinatingly enough, and with a little nod toward current events, that one thing that might have helped the early church grow was that during times of sickness and disease and panic, that Christians actually felt bound by standards of hospitality and care for the sick, and that in fact, demographics of just Christians who lived through things that they otherwise wouldn't have lived through, through simple acts of care, just like keeping people warm and water, that that actually helped Christianity grow. Like as an historian, does that sort of explanation for why things grow or change hold water? Absolutely, I think it does. I think the, the theology of the human person that Christians developed and then perpetuated over time made it essential for Christians to care for the sick and the dying, whether or not they were Christian or pagan or what their, what their identity was. And that value um, contributed to the growth of the church in terms of numbers, and then it also contributed to the growth of the church in terms of just giving the church and society around it a sense of stability. Yeah. So if the church is where you go um, for education or for healing or for protection, um, that makes sense that the Christian movement would grow. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the church um, and in times of illness. <laughs> mm. Is anybody, anybody nervous about the coronavirus? Even a little bit? Come on, you can admit I, it. It's okay. I won't lie. I did get my, some My wife sent me on an apocalypse food. trip to Fred Meyer on Saturday. It turned out to be totally baseless, but it was... <laughs> It was kind of fun in a way, sort of. But we want you to know that in this class, regardless of what happens or if there's cancellations or quarantines, there's nothing like that on the horizon, by the way, at the university. Mm -hmm. But if there was, we want you to know 100% we're committed. We're going to finish this class. And we will finish it online if we have to. We'll finish it on videos if we have to. We're no finishing this We're finishing. Class. It's happening. Yeah, No money happening. is being wasted. It's happening. So yes. you will do it from home. You will do it from a mountaintop or wherever you are cloistered. It's happening. Okay? Yes. So, so the official message from us to you is we are monitoring the situation closely. <laughs> we are dedicated to your education. And so we, we will work it out one way or another. We're going to work it out. Mm -hmm. Speaking of working it out, in just two days, we're having the midterm exam right in this very room. Same way as our other ones, there'll be those little instructions up on the screen, just as we've always had. Bring a writing surface with you, every other seat, come early, um, and the Theo study guide is up there, and it's been up there for weeks, and we've been talking about it for weeks, and now it will actually happen, and then we can move on to our regular schedule starting next week, finally. Yes, we're really excited about that. So remember, 
midterm Wednesday, no meeting on Friday, but regular schedule the week after that. Do you all remember, you probably, you may not remember, but back in the fall, we had a special guest panelist, Father Stephen Kenyon. Do you remember him, the Catholic priest who was here doing stuff? We are bringing him back for today's lecture. I'm so excited. He was so well-spoken, so faithful. He's also a graduate of George Fox University and sat in your seat, metaphorically speaking, at least at one point. Um, he's a priest at Shepherd of the Valley Catholic Church down by Medford. I forgot what the name of the town is, Central Point or something like that. Something with the word central in it and something near Medford. Um, but he is a priest. He graduated from George Fox University, just like you. He went to Mount Angel Seminary. Has anyone ever been to Mount Angel Seminary? You can totally go there. It's open. It's gorgeous. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Highly recommend. Beautiful hilltop um, place. So he went to seminary there. It's one of the biggest seminaries actually in the United States to train priests. Um, and he serves as a priest uh, down there now where he's been, I think, for eight months. And he's going to lecture our faces off on a 1,000-year period that we call the medieval period um, or the Middle Ages. Yes, but before we welcome Father Stephen, will you join us in reciting the creed? Let's do it. I believe, believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Please join us in welcoming Father Stephen Kenyon. Well, what a joy it is to be with all of you this morning. Uh, as they mentioned, I'm a Catholic priest, so that's the big C. I know you've been talking in the last uh, couple days uh, in this class about the history of the church. And this morning, we're going to start with looking at a thousand-year history. A thousand years is a long time, right? So the United States has been around for a little over 200 years. So we're talking almost five times the history of the United States. And we're going to do it in a 30-minute time period. Uh, full disclosure before I begin, though, I woke up this morning and my throat was uh, not co cooperating and my voice was entirely gone. It's recovered, thankfully, um, but maybe just a reminder that as with the individual, so with the church, that often in our weakness, God manifests his power. Uh, and so if my voice goes out at any point this morning, I apologize ahead of time. But maybe that's a good way to start. You know, I don't know about you, but when I started college, the Middle Ages was this period that I had really no knowledge about. And maybe you have certain thoughts or stereotypes about the Middle Ages. Maybe you've heard it described as the Dark Ages, um, this time where nothing really happened. Maybe you've heard about some things like the Crusades, right? This uh, military conquest by Christians in, in the Holy Land in Israel. And we get these ideas about the Middle Ages, and we can kind of put up our hands against it. But just as any other time period in the history of the church, the Middle Ages is as complicated, as interesting, as dynamic, and as full of problems, but also graces, full of issues, but also gifts. And as we dive into the Middle Ages, we want to kind of take an approach to it, you know, where we're sitting and not judging our brothers and sisters in Christ that went before us. Instead, we're trying to seek to understand who they were. Because if you look at the history of the church, every single age has its problems. Every single age has its issues that it's going through. Next week, you'll be reading through the Acts of the Apostles. And 
Look at it, honestly. You'll see all kinds of corruption and scandal and problems. Read the uh, letter of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. The early church, even in the very beginning, just a few years after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, the early church was dealing with problems. And yet, when you read the Acts of the Apostles, the main character of the Acts of the Apostles is not any one of the Apostles. The main character of the Acts of the Apostles is the Holy Spirit. That at every single page, every single verse, the Holy Spirit is there, even in the midst of the corruption and the problems. And the history of the church is no different. In a way, the history of the church is the continuation of the Acts of the Apostles. Not in the sense of being canonical scripture, not in the sense of being inspired word of God in that way, but in the sense that the Holy Spirit is the main character in the history of the church. And then when we see problems or issues in church history, we're not seeing an absence of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is somehow, in a mysterious way, in the midst of those problems. Somehow in the midst of those issues, guiding and leading the church throughout the centuries. And that should be our approach that kind of governs how we look at this time period. So we're looking at the time period roughly 500 to 1500. So a thousand years or half of Christian history. And we want to get kind of our bearings settled a little bit or, or get, figure out where we are in this situation. This time period is going to feel very foreign to most of us for a couple reasons. One, because at a very basic level, they weren't modern Americans who lived back 1,500 or 500 years ago. You know, the modern conveniences they have. It, your life today would have seemed like more grandiose than the greatest king of that time period. They were most people were uneducated, illiterate. Most people were living, you know, sort of day-to-day um, -day, um, in, in what we would consider extreme poverty. And so it's a very foreign world in that sense, but it's also maybe a very foreign world to many here today um, because if you grew up in, and your main experience of Christianity is maybe Pentecostal or Baptist or evangelical, non-denominational, during the Middle Ages, during this period, 500, 1500, all of Christianity will feel a little bit different to you. It'll feel much more um, if you have any experience with, with Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Because the the church during this time period, basically all Christians have, are very liturgical. Um, they're also sacramental, which means that their life is, is guided uh, and strengthened by the seven sacraments. Baptism, Eucharist, it's the Lord's Supper, and so on. And it's also a time in which you have a hierarchy in the church, uh, throughout the whole church. There's, you know, if you have an experience where you go to a church where basically your pastor is not uh, under anyone else and is really independent, that didn't exist throughout the Middle Ages. You have a structure, we have bishops, priests, and deacons, and then those bishops are guided and gathered together by leaders in the church. So the church has a certain structure to it. So when we get into this, the, the history of the church, we want to take that, that perspective, right? Have that sense of um, what the Middle Ages is like. And I want to frame it in three basic uh, topics today. We're looking for the Holy Spirit's work, then we want to ask three questions or three main themes that are based on Jesus' teaching. The church is seeking to live out the gospel, and Jesus gives the church a lot to do, gives the church certain commands. How does the church live out these commands of Jesus throughout history? And there's so much more information that I could dive into, but we'll do these three in, in a very general way. The three we'll talk about today is unity, evangelization, and monasticism. If you don't know what that third one is, we'll talk about it in a moment. Unity, evangelization, and monasticism. 
So let's start with unity. You've been reading this week in the Gospel of John, and not all the chapters have been assigned to you, but one of the chapters in there at the end, right before Jesus is betrayed, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays this beautiful prayer in John chapter 17, a prayer to the Father. And in that prayer, he prays for his disciples, but he also prays for those who would come to believe. That's those who are in the church throughout the centuries. And this is what he says, John 17, 20 through 21. I do not pray for these only, for my disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word, all the Christians throughout the centuries, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wanted the church to be one, to have a unity to it. And when you read through the New Testament, you see this theme is so essential. It's constantly mentioned in the letters that the apostles write, that the church be one, that there be a unity in place. And Jesus says that it's a sign that we are in the Father and also a sign to the world, a sign that we are the church that Jesus founded that there's a unity to it. But here's the sad reality of Christian history. That hasn't always been the case. We've broken and divided that unity throughout the centuries. And you can kind of tell the history of the church, the story of the history of the church, with looking at how we've divided and separated. To understand this, we need to understand how many different branches of Christianity there are. There are five basic branches of Christianity, so you can count on the fingers of your hand. There's Catholic, big C Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Church of the East, and Protestants. And those Protestants are are many different groups within that. So Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Church of the East, and Protestants. And the history of the church, in a sense, can be told how the one becomes five. Because in early church history, which you talked about, about uh, last week, but maybe didn't get into this theme as much, that's where the one became three. You have the first break-off of the Church of the East and the Oriental Orthodox from the rest of Christianity. Then in the Middle Ages, the time we'll talk about today, you have the break between Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And then the last 500 years, the modern period, is how that four then become five with Protestants And then the Protestants breaking into many different groups. So how the five, then the fifth one became many, many groups. And you'll talk about that in the coming weeks. And so today, our story with this thousand years is we're going to try to look at how the three became four. How Catholics and Eastern Orthodox broke off from each other. And it's going to be helpful for us to understand a timeline. So if you have paper in front of you, I don't know how you study history. My, my preference is I always try to have some kind of timeline going. Some visual way to, to understand the history. So you have a, a timeline, and go ahead and divide it into five sections. Or put five little marks on it. And in this, we're going to kind of mark off every 200 years, right? So about the history of the United States. We're going to do 600, 800, 1,000, 1,200, and 1,400. So at the beginning, 600, there's three branches of Christianity. And by the end of our story, just after 1,400, there will be four. 
And the process and the story of how the three become four, how Catholics and Eastern Orthodox break off from each other, begins around 800. And so it's important for us to understand what's happened politically. Picture a map of Europe in your head. You have Eastern and Western Europe, right? And there's the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is around the Mediterranean. About the year, uh, in the 200s and 300s, the Roman Empire broke into two parts, the West and the East. In the 400s, the West collapsed. The Eastern Roman Empire did not collapse until just after 1400. So the whole Middle Ages, the Roman Empire still exists, but only in the East. In the West, they speak Latin. In the East, they speak Greek. So they have different languages. And as time goes on, they start to get separated culturally. The main city, the center for Western Europe is Rome. The main city, the center for Eastern Europe is Constantinople. Right? The, the old song, Istanbul is Constantinople. That's this city here. So it's in uh, modern-day Turkey and Greece. And what you have is, as the communities, Christians on the West and Christians on the East, start to get more separated. Language is different. They're divided. They're not understanding and communicating with each other. They start to lose their bond of love. They start to lose the bond that connects and unites them. And so what could have been issues that could have been solved, they didn't have a desire to solve. And so as you start to get into the 800s and into 1,000, you start to get petty disputes, like whether or not priests should have beards or not. In the West, no beards. In the East, beards. And they start arguing back and forth. It leads to, in my opinion, the best insult of the Middle Ages. The Western priests, with their clean-shaven faces, uh, insulted the Eastern priests and said they were effeminate for having beards. Uh, you can't make that sort of stuff up. But this is, uh, th that's not a real dispute, right? I mean, it's like, whether you have a beard or not, it doesn't matter. And this is because there just isn't, there's this breakdown of communication. People aren't communicating with each other. They're not talking. In the middle of this, there comes a controversy called the filioque. And the filioque is a Latin word which means, and the son. So this year, you've been studying the Apostles' Creed. And as Dr. Clara mentioned last week, there's uh, other, form, other creeds. And one of those creeds is the Nicene Creed. It's kind of like the Apostles' Creed, but longer. And in it has a line that says, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Just like the Son is begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Well, in the West, Western Christians were dealing with an issue where there were people among them who were saying that Jesus is not fully God. And this was a problem, right? That's something so fundamental to being Christians, that Jesus is God, that they said, we need to increase our understanding. We need to emphasize that Jesus is fully God. And so that line, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, they added the word filioque and the Son to it to emphasize that Jesus is God. Well, in Latin, this works, and it's totally orthodox. It's totally fine. It, it makes sense, um, and it just says that, that. It emphasizes that Jesus is God. But in Greek, if you take the same words and you translate them into Greek, that same line, all of a sudden you end up with an error. It implies that the Holy Spirit is not God. So you can imagine the problem. Here in the West, we've got Christians who are saying, hey, we're adding this to say that Jesus is fully God. And in the East, they're saying, hang on a moment. You're saying the Holy Spirit is not God. That seems like an easy issue to solve, but if you're not talking to each other, and you're just talking past each other, 
then it creates a huge problem. The East is saying, West, you can't say the Holy Spirit is not God. And the West is saying, East, why don't you say that Jesus is God? But because there's this language barrier and because there's not a willingness to interact with each other, it creates a huge problem. In the year 1054, a small event happens which later becomes very significant. One leader from the West goes over to the East and excommunicates a leader from the East. And the leader from the East excommunicates the leader from the West. Well, excommunicate means you're no longer in communion or fellowship with me. And the next day, the rest of Europe woke up and didn't, wasn't concerned about it. Hundreds of years later, we look back at that and we see this as one of the critical breaking points of the church. But it really is more of a symbolic breaking point. It was tensions were rising, issues were coming up. And there were attempts at, at, at reconciling this. You know, in the, in the 1200s and the 1400s, there were councils that were called trying to bring back East and West, and they ultimately failed. It was a little bit too late. It's like doing marriage counseling with a, a couple that's basically divorced already. The, the, the community was, was already severed. And so in the year 14, 1453, an event happened which basically ended and severed East and West. The city of Constantinople was conquered by the Ottomans, who were a Muslim empire. And when they, when they were under siege, the leader of the church in Constantinople asked the leader of the church in Rome for help, the Pope. And he asked the Pope for help, and the Pope sent what he had, and he asked the other kingdoms in Europe to help, and ultimately, none of them responded. And so what happened was Constantinople was under siege and there's cannon fire coming and hitting the walls of the city of Constantinople. And inside there are Catholics and Orthodox, East and West, both inside that city trying to defend it. And for the last time they're united because they are united together to protect the city. And they're walking along the city wall praying for the city wall that it would stand. And they're celebrating the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, for the last time together. But the cannon fire continued, the city wall was breached, and the Ottoman Empire poured into the city. Destroyed the city of Constant conquered the city of Constantinople, destroyed churches, killed priests, and turned the Hagia Sophia, which is the largest church in Eastern Europe, into a mosque. And this devastated the East. Eastern Europe was devastated by this loss. And ultimately, many of them blamed the West for not helping, for not being there to aid them. And since that day, East and West has been separated and divided. But I hope you can see there wasn't like a moment where there was a real theological difference. I mean, there were some issues that came up. There wasn't a moment of clear break. Instead, there's 600 years where East and West are falling out of love with each other. They're ceasing to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when a crisis comes, like in many marriages, it's over. When that crisis hits, there's no longer unity. And so the three become four. And then a little over 60 years later begins the event known as the Protestant Reformation and that four becomes five. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. I hope this is a reminder to us that so many of our issues often are these kind of issues. As we wade into times like the Middle Ages, we're wading into a time in which 
we could have solved our problems had we learned to love each other. Had we learned to, to understand and to seek to understand our brothers and sisters in Christ instead of focusing on our own differences. And so now we move to the second point. Evangelization. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has just risen from the dead, and he says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I command you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus sends his church out to evangelize the world. He wants his church to go everywhere. And in the history of the church, there have been times of great missionary expansion, and then there have been times where we haven't done that. And it's important for us to realize that in the Middle Ages, we have both. In the early Middle Ages, 600s, 800s to 1,000, is one of the greatest times of Christian evangelization in history. The church is spreading out. It's moving beyond the Roman Empire. So in Europe, it's going up into northern Europe, to England, to Germany, into Russia. And then throughout Asia, it's expanding. It's already been in India for some time, but now it's going up into Mongolia and China. So if you're familiar with Genghis Khan, right, the great Mongolian conqueror, he had family members who were Christian. They belonged to the Church of the East. That's one of those groups that I mentioned. The church is expanding throughout the whole world. But then, in about a thousand or so, it kind of has expanded to its limit politically. It can't get into Africa because you have Islam in North Africa, and it's got seas on other sides. And then what starts to happen in Asia is the church gets persecuted. So throughout the second half of the Middle Ages, you have great persecution in the church in Asia. But in Europe, the church is, stays strong. And one of the reasons for this is its political influence. So if you think today, oftentimes we talk about the church and politics, right? And there's this question like, should the church be in politics or should it be out of politics? And we have, in the United States, this idea of separation of church and state. That didn't exist back then. There was no sense that you could have a separation of church and state. You really had two models. Either the church is over the state, or the state is over the church. And if the state is over the church and doesn't like the church, then the church gets persecuted. And so in Asia, you have this issue where the, church, the state is over the church. And the church is persecuted, and at the, at the high point in the Middle Ages... It's spread over the whole of Asia, and there's Christians in Mongolia and China and India, Central Asia. And by the end of the Middle Ages, by about 1400 and 1500, that church spread throughout Asia is reduced down to small pockets in India and in the Middle East. It reduced from being this expanse over the whole of Asia to being non-existent in places like China and Mongolia. Because they didn't have the structure of the state to support them. But in Western Europe especially, the state, the church becomes over the state. The church, the pope, the leader in Western Europe, starts to be able to actually command kings to do things. If they don't, then they'll be excommunicated. They'll be kicked out of fellowship in the church. So, for example, if there's a war that's unjust, the pope can, say, can stop that, right? He can tell a king to, to cut it out. And this, of course, leads to a lot of problems, right? I mean, you can imagine, if you have a lot of political authority, then you've got an issue where you have this political authority and that easily corrupts, right? So you have popes that give power to their nephews. Um, and you have uh, popes that pick their friends for things. At the same time, though, two really important things happen for the church. One, you get stability. 
Remember how I mentioned that Western Europe, the Roman Empire collapsed? Well, there was sort of a vacuum that happened. All of a sudden, the, the countries, there's no longer a stability politically. And so you have all these warlords fighting amongst themselves. And the church starts to bring stability there. You know, if you're only worried about food in your mouth and avoiding being killed, it's hard sometimes to worry about the gospel. And stability gives a sense of people's lives. They can have peace. And they can start to have the ability to have a normal life and ask questions like, you know, should I be going to church? You know, how should I live my life according to the gospel? So that stability is really important. The second thing, though, is it allows the church to be independent of the state. It means that the church gets to be independent and doesn't get persecuted and it doesn't get changed. You know, the, the reigning king can't say, I want to change the gospel to fit my needs. He can't say, I want to change this teaching of, of the gospel because it fits me politically. And so it gives the church a certain independence in the midst of it. But the second thing that really helped Christianity thrive in Europe was its cultural influence. We, you know, we tend to think about missionary work like this. Send missionary, missionary preaches gospel, people believe, end of story, right? But I don't know about you, but my experience of faith is it's so much more than just simply believing a truth. That if I don't have kind of more that's going on, then my belief starts to wane. I start to doubt. I start to get discouraged. And so... The work in the Middle Ages was often making faith into culture. You know, oftentimes, sometimes maybe you hear this contrast between cultural Christianity and a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Um, you know, someone could be culturally Christian but never come to church, never have a relationship with God. And certainly that personal relationship is key. But that cultural stuff isn't bad. It's the kind of stuff that supports it. You know, think about the fact that today... Most Christians, the, the time when you have most people at church is when it's Easter and Christmas. Why? Because there's a cultural thing going on, right? And so, if there's that cultural thing, that's not enough. But maybe one of those Christmases and one of those Easter's, that person will hear the gospel in a new way and start that per personal relationship with Jesus. And so the same is true in the Middle Ages. You know, in the Middle Ages, the whole year was dictated by the church. You know, we have this time of Lent that we talked about last week, right? This 40 days preparation for Easter. Then you had 50 days celebrating Easter. And then throughout the whole year, you have all these feast days that celebrate different events of the gospel, like the baptism of Jesus, or his transfiguration on the mount, or the lives of a saint. And these kind of things gave a structure so that people were learning the gospel as they went throughout the year. You know, people didn't have Bibles not because anyone was stopping you from getting them, but because they were so expensive. At the beginning of the year, you received your Bible, right? And imagine if when the person had handed you the Bible that you have for this class, they'd said, okay, that will be $200,000. That was the going price for a Bible in the Middle Ages. Every word had to be handwritten. But on top of it, if you were in the Middle Ages, if you lived a thousand years ago, you would have been illiterate as well. So, a very few number of the people could actually read and write. So if you're a medieval peasant, you can't read and write, and there's probably only one Bible in your town, and that's at the local church. And the priest who can read and write can read it and then explain it to you. But yet, despite that, the typical average peasant in the Middle Ages was more familiar with the gospel and the stories of the Bible than the average American today. Think about that contrast. Here's an illiterate people, an uneducated people who don't have, you know, here you are at a college education, and yet they know the Bible story better than the typical American who can read and write 
and they can go pick up a Bible for 10 bucks at the store. How did this happen? It was by culture. You have these, the calendar that's going throughout the year, but you also have big feasts and festivals. Plays would be put on that would show stories of the Bible, like the fall. You have devotions and, and prayers that would help people enter into what the gospel was about, things that illiterate people could understand. And so a town would spend a century building a cathedral, this massive structure in the middle of town, and they would put in these beautiful stained glass windows that would tell the stories of the Bible. And they would set the Bible verses to the most beautiful, transcendent, and heavenly music so that anyone who stood in that church could recognize that they were standing in the presence of God and that they could hear and experience the gospel in a way that spoke to their hearts. And it wasn't just an intellectual thing. It was something that permeated the whole of themselves. You know, sometimes we look at the opulence of the Middle Ages, you know, building huge cathedrals, and we wonder why didn't they care for the poor more? In a way, they were. The poor, you can't hand them a Bible, but you can give them a cathedral. And they can stand in that cathedral and they can experience the story of the Bible the same as the nobleman standing next to them. They have an encounter with God. And so this is part of how the church in the Middle Ages went out to preach the gospel to all the world. Not just to communicate to the head, but to preach to the whole body as well. That the whole person would be part of the gospel, would understand the story. And now the third point. Monasticism. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says to his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. These words of Jesus are directed to all Christians. But since the earliest days of the church, certain Christians decided that they wanted to take these words in a more radical way. And the other teachings of Jesus as well. Teachings of Jesus in Matthew 19 about being called to celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, not marrying. Or teachings in Luke chapter 18, to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And so Christians would leave the rest of society and go off, and they would live in poverty, and they would live without marriage, and they would devote their life to prayer in a way that tried to emulate these teachings of Jesus. And in the early Middle Ages, around just before the year 600, this starts to be more formalized. And you have communities come together called monasteries. And so you have a community of men, who would be known as monks, who all gather in a monastery, or a community of women known as nuns who would gather in a monastery. And they would give up marriage, they would give up property, they would share everything in common, and they would devote themselves to prayer and to service in that community. And you might think of that as escapist, right? They're going away from society, they're going off to live in some hilltop somewhere, some mountain, uh, build a little monastery and uh, pursue prayer. But nothing could be farther from the truth. It's hard to underestimate the power and influence of monasticism. There's probably no greater force in the entire Middle Ages and one of the greatest forces in all Christian history for change in the church than monasticism. This movement away from society became one of the strongest forces for changing society. Monasticism was the voice and the conscience of the Middle Ages. So 
the Crusades, right? You know, talk about this time of war and fighting that was promoted by Christians. It was the monks in monasteries who were crying out against the worst abuses of the Crusades, saying that wars of aggression were never justified by the gospel. Or at times in which kings or emperors would try to impose their will on the gospel and change the teachings of the gospel, it was the monasteries that would cry out and say, no, we're going to hold to the teachings of Jesus and not change for political reasons. It was monasteries that would often care for the poor and the sick. And they became places for the refugee, those seeking asylum. They were also the sources of intellectual life. You know, in the Middle Ages, you have some of the greatest Christian thinkers in history. And they, most of them came from monasteries. So thinkers like men like St. Anselm of Canterbury and St. Thomas Aquinas, or women like St. Hildegard of Bingham and St. Catherine of Siena, they all came from this tradition of monasticism. But also throughout the Middle Ages, monasticism was a source of revival and renewal. You know, sometimes we get this image of the Dark Ages, right? It's like, it's this really dark time and there's nothing going on in the church and then finally it gets out of it at the end of the Middle Ages. But in fact, the history of monasticism is like this undulating pattern of revival and then corruption and problem and revival and corruption and problem like any other time in church history. And almost every single revival renewal in, church hist- in, in the Middle Ages came from monasticism. So the 800s, there was a revival. And that came from the monasticism known as ben- the Benedictines. In the thousands, there was a revival. And that came from a monastery called Cluny in southern France. In the 1100s, there was a revival, and it came from a monastery at Corvaux. And then in the 1200s, you have one of the most significant revivals in all of Christian history. And it transforms the whole landscape of Christianity in Europe. It revives a sense of the gospel for people. And it comes because of a new change in this monasticism. Do you know how I mentioned that monasticism was going away from society and starting your own group out here? Well, in the, middle, in the midst of this, there came the movement called the Mendicants. And the Mendicants were like monks on the move. Instead of being in their monastery, these Mendicants started to go out into the street. And so you have St. Francis of Assisi, who started the Franciscans. And he dedicates his life to living in absolute poverty, in fact, the way he raised money for their order, for their community, was he would go out and beg like those who were poor, beg on the street for money. And he lived this way as a radical way of preaching the gospel. Or you have those like St. Dominic and the Dominicans who dedicated themselves to teaching. They would go out on the streets and preach to people and go out and try to convert people to live the gospel in a more radical way. And this transformed the, life, the daily life of Christians all across Europe. All of a sudden, there was the monks who had been in their monasteries were now out and about among the people as well. They were out and about helping and assisting those in need, but also preaching the gospel. And you have these massive rallies. Thousands of people would gather around because here comes a mendicant, and he's going to preach this message. And they're encountering the gospel in a new way. But in the midst of all this, it changed Europe, but that was never the goal of monasticism. The goal of the monk or the nun was never to change the world. The goal of the monk or the nun was to change him or herself, to be converted inwardly. And I'll end with this story as an illustration of that. St. Thomas Aquinas, who I just mentioned, is one of the greatest thinkers in the Middle Ages. He wrote many works of theology, but one of the, his greatest work, called the Summa Theologiae, 
is arguably one of the most influential works in Christian history and maybe the single most influential work of theology ever written. It's still talked about and discussed today. It's like eight massive volumes. It takes up most of my shelf, one of my bookshelves. And it has some of the most beautiful descriptions of the Trinity, of the Incarnation, of grace and the life of virtue, of the sacraments. So here's this incredible thinker. And at the end of his life, he's in the midst of prayer and he has a vision. And in that vision, he sees Jesus come to him. And in that vision, Jesus says to him, Thomas, what do you want as a reward for your work? For all that you've done in your life, what do you want as a reward? It's kind of like that scene you remember from Solomon, right, in in 1 Kings, where God comes and asks, "What, what do you want? And Thomas responds with one single beautiful Latin phrase. Non nisite domine. None but you, Lord. None but you, Lord. That's the secret of monasticism. St. Thomas Aquinas didn't write some of the greatest works of theology because he wanted to change the world, because 800 years later he wanted people to be reading his stuff. He wrote these works of theology because he wanted to pursue Christ, because he wanted to come face to face with his Lord. And in doing so, he changed the world. And so the secret of monasticism is that here are these men and women throughout the centuries who went out, who left the world to pursue God, and in doing so, almost by accident, the world was caught on fire. And in a way, that's how the Middle Ages worked. As I mentioned in the beginning, the Holy Spirit is the main actor, right? The Holy Spirit is the main character. And when you look throughout this history, what you see is, despite all of the problems, despite all of the issues, a broken church, problems with political corruption, Despite all of this, there's the Holy Spirit guiding and leading his church. Despite all of this, there's the Holy Spirit working to revive and renew his church throughout these centuries. And I think this is one of the gifts of the Middle Ages, that if we can see the Holy Spirit's work in the midst of the problems in church history, we can see the Holy Spirit amidst the work of the problems in our own life. When we can see how the church broke because we stopped loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can learn how to love our brothers and sisters and understand those with differences. When we can see how the church evangelized and wrestled with issues of politics and culture, we can see how the Holy Spirit might be amidst in the the brokenness of our issues of struggling with politics and culture. And when we can see how monks and nuns transform the world not by seeking to change it, but by seeking to transform their own lives, we can see what we need to do ourselves that we too need to make that prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas our own. Non nisi te domine, none but you, Lord. That when we see the Holy Spirit's work in the church, we can better understand the Holy Spirit's work in our own lives. And I think that's the lasting legacy of the Middle Ages. To see the Holy Spirit and how he converts us and how he takes us, this broken, sometimes wounded body of Christ, and makes something beautiful out of it. Thank you.